Welcome to the Space Salvi Institute podcast. I'm Andrew Pettiprin talking, as always, with co-founder of the Space Salvi Institute and director, Bobby Mixa. Bobby, how are you? Good, Andrew. It's uh, snowing today in Krakow, so that's why my, my hair is, the little hair that I have left is all messed up because I just got out of the, you know, shovel out of the, the snow shoveling. We got like, what, four to five inches, so... Oh, man. Is you you moved there just before summertime? Is the is the honeymoon over? Or is the a little is bit still wearing <laughs> a little yeah. bit? Yeah. Okay. It's over. I'm I'm you know, every day stuck on the bus, like you know, crunched like a sardine. Um, so yeah, it's over. Well, spring spring will come again, and that will be uh, grounds for rejoicing. Well, Bobby, I'm uh, I'm really excited about today's episode. I think we're going to have a great conversation because we have our friend Carl Olson joining us today. Carl is editor of Catholic World Report and Ignatius Insight and the author of various books. Uh, I love writing for Carl. I, I love, uh, love interacting with Carl. And uh, this is great to actually get to talk on a podcast. So Carl, welcome. How are you? Good. Thanks, Andrew. Bobby, great to be with you guys and uh, to kind of meet face to face for the first time and to, to talk about some both fascinating and kind of kind of fun, fun things. Yeah, the fun things we're going to get into are uh, basically related to the end of the world, which is something I think about fairly often. Um, not always fun for everybody, but uh, the the occasion maybe that we can we can uh, attach to our conversation is the 20th anniversary of your book Carl called Will Catholics Be Left Behind published in 2003 by Ignatius Press um Carl you and I now I think you identify as having been a fundamentalist I I don't think I came from an evangelical background we I don't think we really called ourselves fundamentalists but I definitely grew up in an environment where we thought a lot about the end times, the rapture, um, these big these big questions. When I was in middle school at the Christian school where my mom taught for 20 years, we watched Donald Thompson's movie, A Thief in the Night. Maybe we'll get into that. And I definitely remember in the 90s, the big phenomenon of the whole kind of popularization of this, uh, of this theology in the Left Behind books. So um, let me just throw it to you and just say, you know, tell us about your background with that stuff and what what brought you to the point where you not only entered the Catholic Church, but then wrote a book in a sense, like explaining to Catholics what all of this end time stuff is about. Well, we had some similar experiences. I remember reading or watching the movie Thief of the Night two or three times. Um, and that, of course, was kind of a uh, the fundamentalist end times movie back in the 70s and 80s. Well, we didn't call ourselves fundamentalists. We were Bible-believing Christians, but I use the term fundamentalist in its you know historical, non-pejorative sense, and I sometimes have to clarify that because, of course, that term has become now it's almost like a swear word, right? But of course, it goes back to the early 1900s when there was a series of books published called the Fundamentals that were actually written by men with doctorates who are teaching at Harvard and Princeton and, and, and places like that, defending the fundamentals of the faith, uh, the inerrancy of scripture, the virgin birth, the salvific death of Jesus Christ, etc. Now, I didn't really know much about those books until later. I grew up definitely in a what I would call an anti-Catholic 
background. Not that we hated Catholics. We just knew that our Catholic friends were going to hell because they weren't actually saved or Christian. And it, it, it was kind of a matter of fact thing. Now we cared about that. That's why we witnessed to them. We encouraged them to become true Christians, to leave behind Romanism and, and of course, this false pagan religion that they followed. Um, of course, we knew nothing actually about Catholicism. That's, you know, one thing later I realized is I didn't know actually anything at all about the Catholic Church, historically, theologically, whatever. Um, but there was always that sense of this could be it, that the rapture could be coming, that we could be yanked out of here, and then there'd be this time of tribulation of seven years. And, and in fact, um, one story I tell, because it always has stuck with me, was when I was about probably about 14, 15 years old, one of the elders of the Bible chapel I grew up in, my, my father co-founded when I was four or five years old, co-founded a little Bible chapel in uh, western Montana. And uh, that's where I grew up. And we had a, kind of an elder system. We didn't have pastors at that time. And one of the elders there, great, great guy, wonderful guy, told me very seriously. So, you know, Carl said, we don't know when this rapture, you know, the rapture is going to happen. He said, but it, it, it probably is going to be very soon. And he said, one thing to think about is, is, you know, you get to that age where you're going to start dating and so forth. He said, really, you know, consider that maybe that that's not something you need to worry about, that the, the rapture is going to happen so soon that maybe you don't pursue finding a wife, et cetera. Right. So, um, well, <laughs> I got a little bit older and, my interest in girls was, was too much, and uh, I'm glad I didn't listen to him because my, my wonderful wife, Heather, and I have now been married almost 30 years. So, uh, But that was kind of the mentality, right, that it was happening soon. It was, you know, Tim LaHaye, the uh, co-author, founder, co-author of the Left Behind books, who died a few years ago, you know, he writes in his one of his books how uh, the rapture certainly seemed like it was going to happen within his lifetime, although he would carefully avoid giving a date that was one of the big things don't giving it giving it don't give a date for that um so there's this just interesting reality growing up in that where you you're there's this anticipation at times kind of almost a fear or an excitement or trying to understand events in the middle east in the light of or in russia or wherever geopolitical events in the light of scripture when i was in bible college i went to bible college for two years that was during the persian gulf war and i remember on our dorm hall, there's a big discussion among the guys like, well, I, hey, these verses in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and whatever, they really do explain what's going on right now in the Middle East. So that was kind of the mentality because everything was seen through a particular way of interpreting, exegeting scripture. That was really key to the whole thing. I try to explain to people, and in the book, I, I focus on this a lot, that the whole left behind or premillennial dispensationalist system, the fancy term for it, is not just a particular belief about the end time. It's an entire way of viewing reality, the world, God, salvation, the end times, everything. It's immersive. Now, we can distinguish that, and I think we will as we talk a little bit, um, that the left behind books try to present that, but, but I would say the vast majority of people who read the left behind books had no sense of the immersive quality of this. They were given kind of the pop dispensationalist view. And I think that there are these different stages of the dispensationalist theology that are kind of interesting to consider um, in light of the fact that really this belief system has been around for less than 200 years, right? Mm -hmm. So um, so to answer your question and sum up here, 
I began to have a lot of questions when I went to Bible college for two years, and I ran into some professors, great professors, who, two in particular, one was an Anglican and one was an evangelical, but I took courses from him on uh, the Pentateuch, Old uh, Testament uh, historical books, the prophets. Uh, he also had this great class called Bible Synthesis, which really was his way of explaining Really, it was basically covenant theology. He was explaining how the Old Testament and New Testament uh, interact with each other and are completely compatible with each other, which is very different from what you find in the dispensational system. So I remember I had a conversation with him once. I said, you know, um, Dr. Ginter, what's your, you know, what's your view of, 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 you know, the rapture? Do you believe in the rapture? And he, I remember he, he kind of laughed and gave me this look and he said, what I believe is that we're going to probably be just as surprised at the end of time as people were when Christ came the first time, <laughs> which I think there was a lot of wisdom to that, right? So he, he, didn't, he was not an adherent to the system, and yet he became one of my two or three favorite professors. So that had a huge influence on me. I came out of Bible college with a lot of questions, and throughout the course of my 20s, to sum up a longer story, after I got married, my, my wife and I began to really have a lot of questions. We, began, we were reading a lot of church history, um, er, everything from early church fathers to Augustine to Newman to Aquinas, and then eventually made our way into the Catholic Church by the grace of God back in 1997. Um, so we'd been married for three years, and that was really, that was really about a two- to three-year journey. Those things, questions for us really began— and we're percolating around the time that we we got married. So um, that's kind of the short story. I, th I think for me, the key was recognizing that the Catholic Church, not only was historically the, the church founded by Jesus Christ, but that it had addressed these questions, that it had good answers, that it had great wisdom about all these different things that were puzzling me. And it also had, of course, the Eucharist. And for us, really, the Eucharist was at the heart of our decision to eventually be become become catholic mm -hmm. yeah what go ahead bobby no 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 i i, I was just going to just follow up and maybe we can get into this a little bit later um because um i think many people even catholics who like me never really heard any of this growing up once they do start thinking about things like eschatology and the end times and they get introduced to it by way of the, the rapture. Um, for example, here in Poland, one of my neighbors is actually interested in this topic. And the only kind of literature that she found on it in, in English, could speak English, uh, was about the rapture um, coming from uh, the Left Behind series and everything that's involved with that. And so I really had no way of, like, because I'm not familiar with the, the pre- um, millennialist and the dispensationalist movement. So I didn't know how to, to guide her, but I was, right. I was, I, now I have a book that can actually help her um, with this. But Andrew, I throw it back to you. I'm, I apologize for cutting you off. Well, I just, I, maybe, maybe uh, the next, the next thing that I think just to build on what, what Bobby was saying there is there might be people listening to us who, have heard these terms like rapture and all the, you know, these kinds of things, but really don't know where they even come from. And they might be surprised to find out. Like, I think a lot of Catholics might think, okay, there's a certain type of Protestant who's like really has this particular interpretation of the book of Revelation, right? 
So we can get into that. But the rapture comes from two verses in First Thessalonians that, you know, right? I mean, and it's this strange yep. Yep. use of these very particular verses in the Bible that have created this whole, not only sort of cottage industry for books and movies, but this whole kind of way of thinking of reality, as you said before. So maybe just tell us, like, where does this come from? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's when I give talks on this, I, I give some of the historical background because it's really imperative that people understand the historical genesis of what we call premillennial dispensationalism. The premillennial part is that Christ returns before the establishment of a 1,000-year millennial reign. That's one of the beliefs. The dispensationalist aspect is the belief that there's actually a series of dispensations or, or ages in salvation history in which God works in a particular way with a particular group of people. Um, and then that will eventually conclude with this millennial reign that's that's uh, focused in Jerusalem. This belief system, uh, to put simply but 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 accurately, did not exist until in any kind of really codified form or coherent form uh, until the nineteen or the eighteen thirties, when a former uh, Church of Ireland or Anglican priest, John Nelson Darby who had gone through a series of kind of uh, spiritual crises, had left the Church of Ireland, said it was too lax, it was too morally corrupt. He joined a group called the Plymouth Brethren, which had its own factions, but he was he became kind of the, one of the primary leaders uh, of, this, of the Plymouth Brethren movement, which had a lot of um, success, a lot of adherence in the 1800s, not only in uh, Ireland and England, but also increasingly in North America. And in fact, Darby would eventually come over and give a, a number of different lecture tours in North America, which was uh, a key part of why this belief system became kind of entrenched in the fundamentalist or evangelical world of, of Canada and the United States in particular. Now, Darby's, and this is, this is the key that I emphasize to people, Darby's big insight, which I think was, is just as big as Martin Luther's insight that I'm saved by faith alone sola fide, is that Darby said there are actually two people of God in the world right now, that when Jesus came and tried to establish, reestablish and this uh, Davidic kingdom in his time, he was rejected. In fact, in fact, Darby speaks in very stark terms about he was completely rejected by the Jewish people. Jesus said, hey, I'm here to establish this kingdom. The kingdom is here. I'm going to give it to you, and it was going to be a physical kingdom. And the reason Darby believed that is because Darby really understood the the various prophetic passages of the Old Testament in a, let's call it a very literalist form. I mean, there's literal interpretations of every passage of Scripture, but he had a very literalist view that, for example, Ezekiel 40 to 48, which describes this incredible temple that's going to be built. Uh, he says, hey, that's, that is actually the temple that's going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. There's going to be this establishment of this, and that hasn't happened. Jesus offered it. I mean, he, he laid the groundwork, but he was rejected. So Jesus, according to Darby, and this was, uh, this was more codified and systematized later by people like uh, Cyrus Schofield and then Lewis Berry Chafer and Charles Ryrie, etc. Um, it was that the the earthly people, the Jews, rejected him. And so Jesus was essentially forced, I call it plan B in my book, but he was forced to establish a new people, the church, Christians, his followers, right? So 
there are the heavenly people. This is Darby's term now. He calls that the, the heavenly people are the Christians, the earthly people are the Jewish people. The Jewish people are eventually going to be the recipients of those many Old Testament prophecies of, of land, of temple, of all these things coming back, of David being restored to his throne. But right now we live in this strange kind of parenthetical period of time in which we have the heavenly people, the church, and the earthly people, the Jews. So the rapture, what's the rapture? Well, the rapture follows logically from this because the rapture is the belief that there's going to be a secret removal of these heavenly people, the Christians from earth, so that God can get back to his prophetic clock with the Jewish people and, and make all of that happen. But it's, it's going to be tough because there's going to be a seven-year period of tribulation. There's going to be a lot of death. There's going to be a lot of conflict. But coming out of that, finally, will be a 1,000-year millennial reign. David will be restored to... I mean, as you get further and further into it, it becomes, frankly, more and more strange, kind of surreal, right? But that was Darby's essential core belief. And everything... Everything he approached the scripture came from that belief in the two people of God, heavenly and earthly. And so, as Andrew indicated, you have, okay, well, we got a, we, we have passages in, say, First Thessalonians. We have passages in the Gospel of Matthew. Daniel, of course, becomes a, is always a, been a key book for kind of the Bible prophecy movements over the last few centuries. Um, the book of Revelation, obviously, is huge as well. So all of these things play a role but it, it comes from that core dichotomy, radical dichotomy between. Now, nobody had articulated this before. This is a, this is a unique belief. That's why I say it's, I, I liken it to Martin Luther saying it's faith alone, right? Sola fide. I, and the repercussions of that are just as dramatic. Um, I'm not saying necessarily historically, but in terms of how they shape people's understanding of scripture and the Christian life, they certainly are. They absolutely are. So everything comes from that. And so it, the way that I put it is, if you, if you started out with a bad or a flawed Christology, Jesus failed, or the Jews completely rejected him, which we don't believe, obviously, <laughs> right? Um, and then that's going to lead to a very lacking ecclesiology, a very low view of the church. Darby had a very low, low ecclesiology. And then on top of that, then it leads to a completely warped and even bizarre eschatology. So your Christology informs your ecclesiology, your ecclesiology informs your eschatology. And by the time you get to the eschatology, uh, it's, it's kind of nuts. Right. And one of the things about kind of some of this, some of this theology I remember growing up is it, the church is totally invisible, right? Like the real church. So, I mean, you could be sitting next to like the person who seems like the most faithful Christian in the world, and that person's not going to get raptured. You know, it's like, and so then the call, the kind of like even evangelistic call is sort of like, are you really prepared? You know, are you really going to be one of those ones, right? Um, which is, it, as you said, just such a strange, it's a strange ecclesiology, Christology, and, and eschatology. Um, but let's, you know, Bobby, maybe you want to jump in with something about eschatology, because I think like one of the things that occurs to me is one of the things we want to do in our project at the Space Salvi Institute is talk about eschatology more, because we have found that even though, so thanks be to God, most Catholics don't have this bizarre, you know, uh, end times dispensationalist type stuff. But unfortunately, some Catholics do have a view, which is essentially, 
you just, you know, die and go to heaven and just try, try to be sure that you, you know, things balance out right. So you end up in the right place rather than thinking of resurrection and thinking of judgment and like, you know, all this stuff that's definitely a part of our faith. Right. So I don't know, Bobby, if you want to well, throw it back to you. And no, that, well, that's what I, that's what I grew up with. Um, Andrew, it really was like you and then reading N.T. Wright a little bit that really put the emphasis on on eschatology. But, I mean, I was taking a look at, uh, I was stuck on the bus today. Uh, I was taking a look at the space salvi again, and I went to the section on, on uh, hope in the modern age. Um, and I think, Carl, you've gotten into this too. It's like, there's many social movements. I mean, heck, I'm, I'm preparing tomorrow for a section on, on Stalin, on communism. Uh, then I have to, with another student later in the week, I have to get into the origins of, of um, you know, the Third Reich. And so you have this kind of like this, if you want to say, almost millennial um, you know, almost like approaching this new kingdom on earth um uh you know uh type of theology almost in the political theology and you know it has like an, an imminent eschatology that was it the what did the is that Voglin uh, imminentized the eschaton eschaton and so um in many respects I actually probably grew up with more of that um in my consciousness than actually thinking, okay, yes, Jesus will will come again in glory. Um, that We never heard anything about that. And also, reading the book of Revelation, no, no. The sense of the he heavenly Jerusalem, heaven and earth, nothing like that. So I think, I think here I mentioned my neighbor. The same thing is here in Poland. And once they hear these kind of like these things, theories coming out of America, it's kind of attractive. Hmm. Well, one thing I, I um, go back to, you know, I said that the main reason, or really at the core of my wife and I becoming Catholic was the Eucharist. As I began to study church history and to, to read some, some theology and begin to get a sense of what the Catholic Church teaches about worship, and the Eucharist, a lot of things began to fall into place for me in terms of how I viewed eschatology. I began to really see, and you know, then you go back to like um, early books like Scott Hahn, the, the the Lamb, the Last, the Lamb Supper. But but actually, the the thing by by Dr. Hahn that really influenced me was that he had released a um, a twelve tape series called the Catholic Gospel, where it was actually classroom lectures, which I actually liked Scott's classroom lectures more than kind of the popular books at the time because you really went deep into the authors. In fact, when I first met Scott, it was actually to discuss my book, Will Catholics Be Left Behind? I told him, I was like, man, all these books you mentioned, I Schmaus and Shaben and all the, I mean, I went and got all these books. And really, I, when I began to appreciate the relationship of, of theosis or deification to liturgy, Eucharist, eschatology, which is a you know a huge topic, obviously, but I began to see how all these things are interrelated. That history, in a way, is really the as as Catholics, there's a sense in which we should see history as the the liturgical living out of who we're meant to be in light of our eternal destiny. Um, and I, it's easy, of course, to we're so deep into the what I call the the matrix that it's very hard for us. And the the liturgy is the the, the 
I think the main place that pulls us out of that. So um, all that to preface saying that there's a term that John Paul II used in his wonderful encyclical on the Eucharist and the church, which if I remember correctly, it was his last, uh, last encyclical before he, he died. He talks about what he calls uh, eschatological tension. I, I've, I've loved that term. I've actually given talks on just that term, eschatological tension, because I think it explains, helps explain so many things. And the real short version is this, which is that we are, we, we are made for more than this world. We are made for eternal communion with God. But if we live in a, in a system or a culture that says, no, this is it, uh, we're stuck on the horizontal scale, then those, those tension, that the fact that we're made for that, but it's repressed, starts to leak out, if you will. It starts to create really perverted forms of like political messianism, uh, messianic movements. Um, you know, there's a real sense in which communism, Nazism, et cetera, were, had religious elements to them, obviously, and tried to replace uh, Christianity. I mean, that was an overt thing that both of those systems tried to do um and i see it you know looking back at my protestant background to focus on that for a moment i looking back realized that i had lived with this eschatological tension and the interesting thing is that the bible chapel that i grew and by the way we called it a bible chapel which my dad co-founded co we called it that because we wouldn't want to call it the church because the church is just that spiritual communion that everybody, you know, to go back to Andrew's point, that's a really big point for us that we, you know, there's no, there's no church in the sense of the Catholic church. There's just a spiritual church. So we call ourselves the Bible chapel, you know, not the Bible church or whatever. The first Baptist church was the Bible chapel. Um, and so, but we had a, we celebrated a form of the, 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 um, Lord's Supper every Sunday, which is very unusual, especially for a more fundamentalist group. Very unusual looking back. And of course, it was bread and grape juice. Um, and it was, a, it was a commemoration. It was a remembrance. It was all this. But man, that to me, even at the age of, say, 10, 12 years old, became kind of my favorite part of, of going to the Bible chapel. There was something about the contemplative. It was actually kind of a contemplative time. We spent 10, 12, 15 minutes in kind of quiet prayer. That really resonated with me. And, and looking back, I see how it, it pointed me eventually towards uh, being being Catholic. And so there was a there was a certain liturgical aspect to that, right? Um, so the in receiving the Eucharist, we actually in this world partake of the kingdom of God. We actually are in the kingdom, and that helps us. I mean, that's not even a strong enough term. I mean, we, that really keeps us from being crushed or perverted by this eschatological tension. We actually know what we're made for. When we receive Holy Communion, we are participating in that great marriage feast of the Lamb that the book mm -hmm. Revelation talks about. If you don't have that, as you know, Catholics and Orthodox do, I think it, it shows itself, it reveals itself in a lot of bad ways sometimes not very overt but sometimes very overtly or at least a really bad theology like in the case of of john nelson darby so i think uh, that to me became a huge thing of recognizing that all these are, are tied together that god actually created the world in a deeply liturgical sacramental reality um one of my favorite authors in that regard is Alexander Schmemann, the great Russian Orthodox writer who has written some great stuff on this. Um, and that really is incredibly helpful for me uh, in contemplating that. And it's something that, like, you, you know, your typical fundamentalist evangelical, unfortunately, they, they don't hear that. They don't see that. They don't know that. 
so it, it leads then they kind of go to places where they try to find answers for that and it they're not satisfied yeah you mentioned before we started recording carl that this some of this dispensationalist end time stuff is a kind it, it's kind of like gnosticism and um and you know what as you were talking about the eucharist you know it just reminded me that you know again and again the eucharist is the antidote to Gnosticism. I mean, it is it is incarnational religion. I mean, it is, and so I think that's really it's really telling that even in your Bible chapel, that's heavily into the dispensational stuff. You do this innocent, I don't know, sort of you know imitation of the Eucharist or whatever, mm -hmm. or kind of you know impaired version yeah. of it or whatever. And that was enough, in a sense, to like do something in your imagination that made you realize that life with Christ is not this you know, gosh, you know, am I, am I going to be raptured or like whatever? And then ultimately leads you into the Catholic church. I wonder too, just last point on this. I happen to know from our conversations that you are, you're Eastern right Catholic and, you know, and you mentioned Alexander Schmemann. I mean, is this, is that something that you, you know, that I would imagine you just sort of experience that in a very special way. Yeah. So my wife and I actually entered the church in, in the Roman right. Um, and at that time, I just had a vague sense, a vague understanding of the Eastern or Byzantine churches. And it just so happens that here in the Eugene Springfield area in, in Oregon, where we live, there's one of the three Eastern Catholic churches in the entire state, uh, Nativity of the Mother of God, Ukrainian Catholic Church. And so in 1999, um, having been Catholic for a couple of years, I, through a series of events, um, met the pastor, Father Richard Janowitz. And we started going to divine liturgy and people will sometimes say to me, Oh, you, you started coming here because you, you know, you, you didn't like the liturgy in the West or you're a liturgical snob or whatever. I said, no, no, I, I really do not want to get into the whole what's better for me. It was, a, it was a, some of it was subjective and some of it was objective. The subjective aspect is that my wife and I both came from little Bible chapels where they were small. So going to a, uh, a Byzantine parish where there's like 100, 120 people really kind of resonated with us personally. Um, but also I loved the richness of the language, the richness of the theological, the prayers and everything. It really resonated with me. It's, uh, and there were many things that I actually really love, you know, kind of subjectively about the Roman rite as well, because I was fortunate to go to parishes that was, it was said well, it was said reverently. I mean, I, I didn't suffer through some kind of egregious liturgical abuses or anything like that, thank, thankfully. Um, it just resonated with us. And then actually I was hired by Father Janowitz uh, in 2000, after I got my MTS, to work for the parish for a couple of years. He said, hey, I've got, we've got money to pay you for a couple of years if you want to teach catechesis and set up some programs and stuff. And so that was really wonderful. That was great. That was kind of immersive for me and for us. Um, and we became parents and it was just, it was great. And so I, but I do think it's true. There's something about the divine liturgy and the Eastern church there, or some of this comes through maybe certainly more overtly. Certainly the idea of theosis comes through more overtly. Um, it's there in the West. It's just more, it's sometimes difficult for people to see until it's kind of pointed out. Um, and so we've been there since uh, 2000, and um, it's been it's been really wonderful. I mean, we've been very fortunate to be in a parish uh, in a parish like that. And so that certainly now here's the uh, kind of a, an irony. My sister, who is nine years younger than me, she and her husband a few years ago uh, entered the Eastern Orthodox Church, 
in the Serbian uh, Orthodox Church. Uh, and I know that many of the same things a, a, appealed, you know, to them. And we've had some really, you know, good conversations, Catholic Orthodox conversations and so forth. And uh, my sister's a very, very talented musician and actually is, is um, has uh, been writing sacred music and has got some really wonderful things going on there. So um, my fundamentalist, my parents who still are very fundamentalist, it's still in a sense anti-Catholic, although my dad actually has defended me to people who've attacked me for being Catholic. Uh, when we have family get-togethers, it's rather interesting. We've got fundamentalist Protestant, Eastern Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox. Um, so... <laughs> Sit in, Carl. Um, you know, Carl, I mentioned, you know, like when you, you linked Eucharist, eschatology, uh, and ecclesiology, and there's this great, I just want to mention, there's a great essay um, in which it was the first time I was really introduced to some of these Russian theologians. Um, and this essay was by uh, Joseph Ratzinger in which he, he, ex he ex explores the link. I'm, I actually I was trying to find the exact name of that of that uh, lecture, but for me, that was was really it was, it was kind of like how David Fagerberg describes when he first read Alexander Schmemann. It was like a, a a bus hit him, and he's just trying to always get the name, the number of the bus. I mean, it. Um, I I really the the Russian theologians, um, particularly uh, Schmemann. I, I was tempted to go run over to my, my bedroom and grab the book on the Eucharist that I'm currently reading by Shmeimon because he gets into the link yeah. between uh, eschatology and the Eucharist. Um, but I, you mentioned theosis. Um, that, for me, was something that really, really, uh, I, I would say, helped me like really appreciate the life, the spiritual life. Um, because before it was just to me, it was like studying all these documents. I didn't really feel this um, this lure, and if, if theology was going to be like you know kneeling theology, I didn't feel like what I was getting um, in typical Catholic theology was helping me do that. So the Russians, in a way, really really helped. Um, so I, I remember when I used to have to teach, like I used to uh, teach the kids on the whole point of Christian life. And David Fagerberg has this great definition of, of the liturgy. It's the Trinity's perichoresis canonically extended to include our synergistic ascent to deification. I, for me, I mean, that was like the formula. This is Christianity, guys. So, yeah. Yeah, David, uh, I actually got, I actually met David on <laughs> online. We actually uh, connected way back when his book on G.K. Chesterton came out because I wrote a glowing review of it on like a Barnes and Noble website. I mean, this is back when, you know, the internet was, was, you know, you had to crank up a wheel by hand to get it going. And um, David reached out to me, sent me an email because my email address was on there and we struck up a friendship and then we got to meet in person a few years ago. And then I championed his book, Liturgical Dogmatics, that eventually got published by Ignatius Press. So David has done some absolutely phenomenal work on liturgy, obviously. Uh, he's got a, a fantastic story. I would, if I want to emphasize, and I'm glad you brought up Ratzinger, that that for me the the, the communio theology of of Ratzinger, Daniel Lu, De Lubac, von Balthasar were really, really, really key in becoming Catholic. I read, I was reading Ratzinger years, uh, two, three years before becoming Catholic. Uh, John Paul II certainly uh, had a huge influence as well. 
reading his early encyclicals. And then, of course, when I was doing my master's program, it was at the kind of it's still in his um, height of his pontificate. And we read uh, a lot of his work. Uh, and his his work is like his, his Trinitarian encyclicals, as I call them, are shot through with theosis. I mean, John Paul II brings in his Eastern, you know, he had that Eastern background as well. So he uses that language a bit more. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think there's I, I've always seen a, a very similar style or approach in ways between like Rossinger, De Lubach, Danielou and somebody like Schmemann, even though they obviously disagree on some things clearly, but there's also a really shared focus on eschatology. Um, and in fact, there's a really great book out on this. And um, I forget the name, the last name of the author who I should remember um, that came out recently. And I'm, I'm going to be interviewing him about that. Um, I should have had it here, but I think that's a, it's a really, Schmemann uh, just has great insights. His book for the life of the world, when we read it in our men's reading group a few years ago, I think guys were really blown away by it. We're challenged by it in a really positive way to see, to see our, our lives in the light of the bigger picture of the ultimate reality. Um, and, and that's just something that I think we, we, uh, we struggle to do, right? Even though we talk about, we, we say the creed, we talk about Christ coming again. This is why, you know, to me, Advent is one of my, even though we don't, I guess, technically have Advent in the Eastern Church. I really love Advent. I wrote a little booklet on Advent that the Catholic Truth Society published um, because I think it is a great challenge to us to think in terms of I'm going to die. I just, I'll say this real quick. I've heard a lot of great homilies. I'm fortunate to go to a parish where Father Jan, which is an amazing homilist. But one of the homilies that has stuck with me forever, it was a 10-minute homily. During my master's program, we, we had um, mass on Saturday and obviously Sunday. It was a Saturday mass. It was, you know, just a sh- kind of a short mass, short homily. But the priest said, and it was related to the readings, he said something that has always stuck with me. He said, a hundred years from now, who will remember you? And he said, You're, we're all going to die. We have to live we need to live with the understanding of we're going to die and think in terms of where, where is our eternal memory meant to be in heaven or here? Now, obviously it's great to have a legacy on earth. There's nothing wrong with that. But his point, I took his point. It went to, it went straight through my heart. I, it, because I think, you know, I've always struggled with, with being pride and I'm going to do all this and do that and whatever, but it really hit me and it really made me double down on, seeing my life in light of eternal destiny. Like what is it really all going to matter a hundred years from now, 200 years from now, what will it matter? Right. Yeah. I, I think that's really important, Carl. And I think, I think that's something that I, even though I didn't grow up in an environment where, I mean, my mother was into the end time stuff or whatever. We had a book, a book on our shelf called Christ returns by 1988. Uh, and actually <laughs> funnily, um, yes. You know, yeah, you said before that you're not supposed to say when it's supposed to happen, but we had that book on our shelf. And I I, I had a conversation with somebody I think you know as well, Matt Swaim, who's the um, the producer of the uh, Journey Home TV show and host of a radio show. And he said he had the same book on his shelf. And so we, you know, we're about, about the same age. Um, so I grew up with some of that, you know, but I also remember like coming coming up in that world and feeling like the, the overwhelming message of it was kind of... Uh, I felt afraid, 
you know, I felt afraid that I would be, that I would end up in the wrong place, right? I mean, the song from that movie, A Thief in the Night goes, there's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind, you know? And we watched this movie and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, it's just crazy. But, you know, in my home, my mother was always very clear with us that, you know, she would show us passages of scripture that, you know, we're not supposed to worry and, you know, and all that kind of thing. So I, I didn't, I came away from it not feeling totally terrified, but this is all a preamble to saying the thing that I have really come to love about you know, first for a, a, a big stretch of my life being an Anglican, but now much more so as a Catholic is really understanding what hope is and, and understand and, and how they, it goes hand in hand with this eschatological view. Um, you know, you said a moment ago, like, you know, ultimately, yeah, in a, in a hundred years, who will remember you and all that kind of thing. And I, I need to hear that message too, because I, I'm prone to kind of be success oriented. And I, you know, I want to, I want to make a difference. I want to do something, leave my mark and all that kind of thing. And I guess what I'm getting at is really focusing on hope has helped me understand that there are actually important things that I can do and should do, but they're only important in light of you know, the hope that I'm that I'm moving towards as a Christian and the hope that the whole world is being called towards in the coming of Christ and in, you know, in the resurrection, right? So I don't know, that's just a comment, but I, I don't know, maybe maybe we could take it from there and talk a little more about hope and just like what that what well, that I, means to us, you know? I want to really quickly say the, uh, the, the song that you quoted from by Larry Norman was, you know, one of the very, uh, Larry Norman was considered the first, a Christian rock artist, and uh, as you might know, he was actually the former uh, brother-in-law of Dale Alquist of the Chesterton oh, yes. Society. And Dale, as a young man in the 1970s, actually worked with uh, Larry Norman. And then Dale, a number of years ago, came and he stayed with us here, and he actually went and visited Larry, who just lived down the road in Salem. He was in very poor health, and, and Larry was able to see him not long before, or Dale saw Larry not long before Larry passed away. But that, that song... It, it is funny because Norman apparently didn't really even believe that it was really about the rapture. He was just taking uh, passages from the Gospel of Matthew and the Olivet Discourse, which, of course, have been used, misused by the dispensationalist theology. But Norman himself didn't really see that as being a rapture song, but has been used that way. Of course, it pops up in the, um, the uh, I think, uh, the, is it the Nicholas Cage one or the Kirk Cameron? I don't know. The, I the the le left behind movies are also egregiously bad it's actually kind of it's actually kind of funny um but you know dale went and witnessed or i mean i was really sharing with larry why he was catholic and they had some great conversations and and um you know he had great admiration for larry as, as a as a person who kind of was a kind of a maverick you know um, and then suffered a lot at the end of his life. Um, so, you know, God rest his soul. The The thing with um, the word hope is so powerful. I mean, there was a, there was a recent president who, who used hope a lot in his uh, campaign stuff. Who was that guy? Uh, yeah. <laughs> he wrote <laughs> hope and change and all that. Um, and to me, I found that really fascinating because he's taking a, obviously there's a secular meaning for hope. Again, it was being used in kind of a quasi-religious way because that resonates with people. We desire hope. That's why I think, you know, Space Salvi by Benedict was kind of a underappreciated encyclical. Uh, it was really fantastic. I, I don't think that people, even people who are really into Ratzinger, might not always appreciate how eschatologically focused 
all of his work is, right? His view of the church, of the Eucharist, of liturgy, everything is so deeply eschatological. Uh, it's one of the reasons why he's, he's one of my two or three favorite, you know, theologians and thinkers, just so profound in that regard. And I think first and foremost for me, hope is realizing that this world is not it. And man, it's a struggle to get a lot of people to even think in those terms. This is not it. At the same time, once we recognize from a Catholic perspective and really believe this is not it, it actually frees us to properly enjoy and celebrate the good things in this world. That's one thing I really learned as a Catholic, that it's it's a good thing to, to drink in moderation and to feast and to sing and to have these wonderful expressions of what it means to be human because they aren't the end in themselves. When they're the end in themselves, then again, they become perverted. We fall into being drunk or gluttonous or sensual or right. So hope, hope is really amazingly prudential in its, its qualities. It, it gives us a perspective that puts, it orders things, the material things in our life in the right way. That for me has been a huge aspect of hope is seeing this life and the good things in it, as well as the struggles, the challenges, the tragedies, the sufferings in light of heavenly glory of heavenly communion, that both of those things, not just the negative of, Oh, well, we're going to just stick it out and make it because we're going to go to heaven. Well, certainly we go through those times. Absolutely. But the other side too, where it's like, Let's enjoy, let's feast, let's celebrate, let's have these wonderful things because they point us toward what's ultimately perfectly good, which is, of course, God himself. Yeah. Uh, on that note, you know, you, you mentioned perfectly good. I think my first encounter uh, with this kind of eschatological dimension um, was by reading the, the dialogues of Plato. And I know um, just in terms of like the allegory of the cave, and you mentioned that once you kind of have, you say that this world is not it. Uh, I remember hearing a professor, and we're actually going to be talking to this professor, I think next week, D.C. Schindler. Uh, I heard him talk on the allegory of the cave once as if you know, people read it as this kind of dualistic system, you know, escaping the, the shadows. But yet he goes back down into the cave but at the same time, you can read it that once you realize that this is not kind of it, you still don't appreciate it as in some ways partaking in the good. And so there is still there's still a certain goodness to it that you can feast and et cetera. Ultimately, right, we believe that this is all kind of finds its fullness in, in Christianity. But I, I kind of that the dimension of, of walking on the way, you know, uh, with with the foot, that dimension, uh, it seems to me that it's something that needs emphasizing. And in Space Avi, the, the underappreciated cyclical, which, you know, when I first read that, it was like, why, why do people not talk about this encyclical more? It's, it, it, I think it's one of the best, like you said, it really gets at the eschatological core of, of his whole his whole thought. Um, it, it just, to me, it, it, he says that Christian existence is hope. That it's basically, that uh, uh, Christian faith is hope. And I know they're all connected, but to get it, 
to put the emphasis there was was really really important. So, um, anyways, that's just a comment. Uh, well, this is why I've I've argued. I wrote a piece about this a few years ago uh, that I believe that the ultimate form of social justice is worship, authentic liturgical worship, because. Uh, justice is what is due, of course, to those who it's due towards. Due, and, and we owe God everything. I, I don't. I don't think that we. It's really hard. You know what? I, one of my mantras to myself the last few years is, "What if? What if I lived as if the Trinity were real? What if I actually lived that way?" And honestly, I don't know how often I really do. Right? But and then, of course, the social aspect. Of course, everything that exists comes from God. But God, at its very heart, is social relational three persons etc cetera, etc cetera. and i wrote that in part because of obviously the misuse of social justice and how even in a catholic context people run with it like the most the most important thing is that we do x y and z it's like no the most important thing first of all is that we know who we are and our relationship to god and then only then can we know that our relationship to others and then act appropriately towards them whether they be poor needy whatever it is that does not happen authentically and with with true meaning uh unless we have our understanding of who we are in, in light of the father son and holy spirit it doesn't happen and um i think that's something that that benedict was trying to bring out i mean he was writing basically a a, a, a three encyclicals on the on uh, faith hope love and he kind of was to me it was like Echoing what John Paul Dude did, too did with his encyclicals on the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think that Benedict purposely did that to kind of um, parallel what John Paul Two did. Um, I don't know that for sure, but it, it makes sense to me, and it certainly reverberates with the deeply uh, Trinitarian belief. You know, so of course the popes believe in the Trinity, but it's one—it's one thing to believe in the Trinity; it's another thing to really delve in it in a way that that those men did right and to to bring out and make us really come face to face with that reality that's another thing altogether that's a, that's a really daunting but necessary thing yeah something that we talk about uh that bobby and i talk about is um that that we get from people like uh larry chap who is getting it from ratzinger it is um you know this idea that we are just kind of mostly drifting around in the world as practical atheists you know that we're just yeah. we really aren't living as if this stuff is real and i'm so grateful to john paul ii and pope benedict who just to put a put a bow on what you've just said so well but just that their writings really convey the reality um, and I just have to keep coming back to them to, to live in that hope, in a sense. Um, in the time that remains, I wonder if we could think about kind of the legacy of some of this and, and maybe like how things are a little different or maybe the same in certain respects as they were 20 years ago when you, when you wrote, Will Catholics Be Left Behind? You know, um, I'm not sure what exactly, maybe it was sort of the Cold War and then the end of the Cold War sort of creating in the culture, especially in, in Western culture, this sense of like, the world is big and scary and unpredictable, you know, that kind of gave rise to some of that. Now, of course, we've got this sort of just beat you over the head message about climate change. And just, I mean, you know, just this overwhelming sense among the elites that like 
well, there's basically nothing we can do except, oh, maybe we can kind of pass some last second legislation or sign on to some treaty and then we can fix everything or whatever. But it does seem like there is a lot of end of the world thinking going on. I mean, I don't know. I don't know about you, but living through the pandemic was kind of, I don't know. I kind of felt like what Rene Girard said about like the shape of the apocalypse is becoming clearer every day. I was kind of like, yep, I'm feeling it. Um, But anyway, where are we with all of this now? Like just kind of as a culture, what would you say? Well, <laughs> hey, I could get rich if I had a great answer to that, couldn't I? Um, yeah. It's a great, it's, I think it's a great question. It's one to really ponder because, well, first of all, I'll start with, let's, I'll, to come full circle, I'll go back to the rapture and dispensationalism. It's really interesting to note that the Left Behind book sold like 80 million copies. So people look at that like, wow, that belief system is just going gangbusters. Actually, I think you could argue uh, very cogently that, no, that was kind of the last gasp. There's nobody out there really writing really rich, robust theological works defending dispensationalism. It's not happening. In fact, there's a great book out now called The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism by Daniel Hummel, who's a uh, historian, evangelical historian. Um, really fascinating book. Really well done. Very impressed with it. He goes through this. And I make that point because I kind of wonder on the flip side, I think we can argue from our perspective that right now in the Catholic world in the United States, there's a lot of amazing work being done, a lot of amazing theological work being done. But my question is, how is it affecting, you know, how is it affecting the culture? That is not at all to a condemnation or an attack on those things. It's more of a, a juxtaposition. Like in other words, I think the American culture still has a latent, a lot of people still have a latent embrace of aspects of dispensationalism, although I think that's fading away. So the question is, what, you know, but that that system doesn't have a robust theological thing going on now, whereas the Catholic world, I think, in many ways does. So how is it working its way out? Well, I think it is working its way out in certain certain ways. There are a lot of the great things going on. I don't want to be negative about that, but we are, we are definitely in a time of, I mean, I really, in my mind, I mark... 2010, give or take, is really a key hinge. I really think that things have changed radically in the last 13 years, um, give or take a year there. That that, and we could point to all kinds of social issues, everything you know, from wokeism to whatever. But there has been a significant change in perspective from our ruling class, from ordinary people, how we view our institutions, the fact that maybe there are no. Are there any mediating institutions anymore? I mean, I ask that seriously. Are there? So that you know, when you and when I was growing up, I'm 54. They still kind of existed. I think they're gone now. Um, what's the state of the academic realm? So I think we're living in a time where people are, as you say, kind of floating around, wondering what the heck is up. And a lot of them, understandably, again, going back to the eschatological tension, they're grasping. I'm going to be an activist. I mean, I live in near Eugene, Oregon. I mean, it's like we. Probably one of the country. It's, it's the leading export of Eugene, Oregon, is activists. Um, and what is it this week, right? And it's true. It's just they they crank out these twenty one year olds, twenty two year olds who know that you know the problems of the world are because of X, Y, and Z. And you, and you kind of look at that now, especially now in my fifties. I, I I laugh, but I also think these are people who are desperate to have meaning outside of the horizontal realm. It's not being given to them. In fact, they're taught to mock the idea that there's something outside of this, this matrix, this temporal world. And yet everything they do, if they really look at it honestly, speaks to the belief in there's something beyond, really. I mean, if you really, if you really truly were an atheist, um, 
what is the point? Why bother? Why bother being a political liar? Who cares? Who cares? Right? So people, I think, intuitively by their own, own actions show there's something there. But we live in a culture that's so devoid of vocabulary, of institutions, of the means. It's a prime opportunity for us as Christians. Um, and I think, you know, we're all in ways trying to address that and trying to get full foothold. I, I think it's just going to be messy and difficult. Um, there's just no easy answers. I, but I do think it comes down eventually, ultimately, personal witness, personal integrity, worshiping God, and then sacrificial love. People, people want to see and experience sacrificial love, whether it be in the family, whether it be among friends, whether it be for strangers. They want to see that and know that. They long for that. And that ultimately points them, if we use that correctly, if we are open to it, um, points to the person of Jesus Christ, who is the personification of sacrificial love. Yeah, well said. And on that note, I think we'll we'll go ahead and wrap up. This has been uh, a really enjoyable conversation, and we'll do it again. I would encourage our listeners to go and check out Will Catholics Be Left Behind? It is still in print. It's still available from Ignatius Press. You can find it wherever you get your books and and be sure to look for Carl E. Olson because there's a Carl V. Olson who is like a, <laughs> a stock car driver or something who has an autobiography out. Hey, maybe you want that one too. Who knows? But uh, definitely check out Carl E. Olson, Will Catholics Be Left Behind and some of his other books too. Check out what he writes on Catholic World Report and elsewhere. To our listeners and viewers, if you enjoyed what we've talked about today, please do share this podcast with a friend. Give us a five-star rating, subscribe, and go to our website spacesalveinstitute.com to sign up for our emails. Carl, I want to thank you again for taking the time to join us today. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. All right. On that note, God bless and live in hope. <laughs>